Hey friends, you know what I don't miss at all? That vicious week before the period. Feeling like I'm ready to crawl out of my skin, irritated by everything and everyone around me. Bouncing between cravings for salty foods and sweets and back again. Now it's easier to manage PMS with Estro Control from Happy Mammoth. Estro Control contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like the chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a menstruating person's life. And the biggest benefit? Feeling like myself again. That's what people mention over and over in their reviews. And there are over 17,000 reviews for Happy Mammoth products, including Estro Control. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code CORP, C-O-R-P, at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code C-O-R-P for 15% off today. Yo, have you heard of LinkedIn Learning? If you haven't, LinkedIn Learning is an American massive open online course provider. It provides video courses taught by industry experts in a variety of subjects. Now, why am I sharing this? I'm sharing this because Living Corporate is in partnership with LinkedIn Learning to provide diversity, equity, and inclusion courses. Listen, if you're trying to be a better ally, you want to understand better diversity, equity, inclusion strategies, or you just want to learn how to be a better leader, you got to check out the courses on LinkedIn Learning. So check it out. You can do it one of two ways. You can click the link in the show notes or you go to LinkedIn Learning and you search Living Corporate. Again, link in the show notes or go to LinkedIn Learning and search Living Corporate. I'll see you over there. Julie, welcome to the show. How you doing? Zach, thank you so much for having me. I'm doing quite well. How about you? I'm doing, you know what? I'm doing okay. You know, people ask you that and you're like, doing great. It's like, mm, no, you? tell the truth, man. Right. You know what I mean? Tell the truth. You had a baby who just had a birthday. That's a big deal. That's right. Yeah. My daughter, Emery, she turned two. So it's been, um, it's been a journey watching her, you know, just watching her grow and being so directly involved every day, right, in her right. development as her father. I know right. we talked a little bit off mic about the fact that you have a, a kids, but they grown. They grown. Well, what does that mean these days? Grown uh, as well, I write so. a lot about that, actually. I have a 22-year-old son uh, and a 20-year-old daughter. So, yeah, different end of the spectrum from you, but that love and care and concern never changes. We just have to, we don't have to hold their hands quite as much anymore. We need to just, you know, stand next to them in case they need us. But increasingly they don't need us, uh, which is a beautiful thing. Although it feels like a loss. It feels like a loss. You know, it's interesting you say that. I was, um, so, you know, with the pandemic um, at, our, at our daycare, at, you know, you, you, we drop, you drop your child off at the, at the, uh, the desk and then they walk, they walk back themselves. Um, wow. <clears throat> okay, here we go. So at the daycare, because of the pandemic, you know, uh, you drop your child off at the desk and then they learn to walk back to their respective class on their own. Wow. Um, but then with, uh, as, as restriction, as, um, you know, things have lifted and, 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 and mask mandates and things have changed, especially in Texas, um, the rules in terms of how we drop off our children has also changed. So now what we do is we walk 
our children back to their class and then they go inside. And so um, I'm always thinking about, I think I didn't think about death a lot before I had a child. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And not in a, not in like a, you know, whatever, not in like this, but you know, I, I didn't. Yeah. Right. But like, just in a like, oh, wow. Like one day my life will end. Right. Um, so what happened was, so, so Julia, I walk Emery back there and in the toddler room, it's popping in there, right? They just, they're moving. <laughs> they got yeah. breakfast. They're, they're having a grand old time. And I'm, and, um, and you can hear them like, oh, Emery, Emery. And, um, and so Emery, we, cause we're walking together. She's holding my hand. She looks at the door and she looks up at me. Um, and I said, okay. And I said, give me a hug. She gave me a hug. So give me a kiss, gave me a kiss. And then she went on and I thought about, um, and then when she walked in, everybody was like, hi, Emery, blah, blah, blah. And I, and I thought about it like, damn, that's kind of like life. <laughs> like one day, yeah. like one day, like she's going to continue on into her journey and her path. And there's going to be a place and point where I don't continue forward. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, I cried. <laughs> I cried. Of course you did. <laughs> Zach, first of all, I don't think you expected to tell this story when you and I sat down for this podcast. I'm not sure your listeners expected it either, but we're talking about the heart of parenting right now. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you as a person who wrote a book, how to raise an adult on the harm of helicopter parenting, which is the result of my years of being a university Dean where I saw helicopter parents mm -hmm. holding their two-year-old's hand, except their two-year-old was 18. Okay. <laughs> That's why I wrote that book. Like at some point they need to go off leash, you know, right. right. Why? Because we'll be dead one day. I literally have built that into my narrative as I've done the keynote for that book. Now for almost seven years, I tell parents that our job as parents is to put ourselves out of a job right? To know in our bones that our children can fend without us. Why? Because we'll be dead one day. And we don't want them at that point to discover for the first time, oh, it's on me to take right. care of my body, my business, my bills, my belongings, right? Mm. It's not about you don't love your child forever. It's no, you love them by teaching them how to be in the world without you. The leash grows longer and longer every year. Your baby girl is two right? So you're still pretty tightly there, but one day she will be eight and then 12 and 15. And you want to have this delicious confidence that I have given her the life experiences that allow her to leave us and go out there and use good judgment and make good choices. And when she falls to pick herself back up, knowing she is always loved, knowing we are always there just in case, but knowing also that we believe that she can and is capable. And that's where overparenting really undermines because the message of overparenting implicitly is you can't succeed. So I'll do it for you. We want to be mm. doing the opposite. Yes, you can. I'm here just in case, but you know, you've got this. It's just, and I think, you know, my daughter is so brave, right? So she'll, she'll try, right? I mean, I'll, another example, we just moved into our new home. And it's a two-story house. Congratulations. Thank you very much, Julie. So, um, and it's been a blessing, right? Like for, yeah. very much so first world problems. Yeah. Moving is, ugh, but <laughs> it's a blessing. Yeah. Um, so anyway, have some stairs. Now, when I was a kid, um, <laughs> my baby sister fell down the stairs. and It was very oh. scary, right? Yeah. Now, she was okay. She honestly, she just, it was just like kind of like tumble, tumble, tumble. She landed on her bottom and she was fine. But it still was scary. traumatic to see. Yeah. So, you know, so... Now I, 
I try again, like to your point about not being helicopter parent, I'm kind of like, okay. And Emery sees the stairs and she just at two years old, she just takes off. Like, and, and then she, um, you know, she doesn't ask for any help. She take, she starts off, uh, kind of crawling and then she reaches the wall and she just starts walking up the stairs. I was like, goodness gracious. Right. So it's just the every day being reminded of like, wow, okay. Yep. This is my baby. This is my daughter. Um, I need to take care of protector. And also there's a continuously growing capability of right. her being able to function and do things on her own that, you know, just a, a week ago, I, I didn't think she, she could do. do. Exactly. Remember when so, she couldn't walk? Remember yeah. when she couldn't walk and we were waiting on that and then she started and she fell and it was like, oh no, she's falling. But the point is you fall and pull back up. That's how your little quads get stronger and your core muscles and your sense right. of balance get stronger. They only strengthen themselves by doing the stuff of life. Like we want to carry them with us all the time because then we know they're safe, but then they'll never be able to walk. Right. Wait till she starts riding a bike. With, oh, oh my we got, goodness. we got, we got her. A, we got her a tricycle, and she's. I'm just like, saying, a tricycle, fantastic. Yeah. But one day it'll be two wheels, which requires balance, and you're going to want to run behind her forever, Daddy. You're and right. it's this beautiful, terrifying thing. I mean, doesn't that describe parenting? Beautiful and terrifying. Oh, like 100%. my heart is on that bicycle. <laughs> you know, like don't let me let go. But she'll develop that balance and go faster on the pedals and you can't keep up and you'll be back there and she'll you know at some point she'll realize you're not there and that she's fine and that ah, she's fine. so and that beautiful she's fine. it is a beautiful thing and and so anyway you know i'm again i'm newer on the parenting journey I'm only two yes. years in so and i you <laughs> know I, I i can sense though you're with the first of all i can hear the wisdom and i sense the uh the the care in which you communicate you know <clears throat> on living corporate um, for those who don't know, because we have first time listeners all the time, right? Like we talk, we center and amplify black and brown folks at work. And, right. you know, something, you know, as I, as I think about the content, uh, Julie, that you, um, that you speak on, think about your TED talk. I think about, think about your other books from writing memoir to, to, uh, to, to real American and also to how, you know, your turn, how to be an adult. You know, I, I so often I, I run into folks and I, and I'm, I think I'm also folks, I'm part of this, this group that, struggles with identity um and confidence and insecurity um being one of the onlys in a space right so you know i came up and was an hr manager at target um and then was a um hr specialist at an oil and gas company called cameron and then i was at accenture and capgemini and pwc and now you know, I'm at a, um, at, at an insights organization in tech, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a director there. So an executive there. Um, and I'm often one of the onlys right. and it took, you know, I'm 32 years old. I turned 33 later this year. And I, and I, I think about, um, you know, I've, I've had to do a lot of grappling with like, okay, my own identity, understanding my voice, my story, and then, um, how to then engage in these majority white spaces um, and I'm curious, like when it comes to understanding your voice or finding your voice or kind of navigating through your insecurities, especially as a black or brown person, biracial person, um, one of, uh, again, anyone on the margins, right? So I'm curious to get your perspective on, on how to develop that, right? I think about these new, um, I think about these, uh, this new generation of talent coming in, but I also think about established professionals in their forties and fifties who are still trying to figure out who they are and also how to, 
how to not be, you know, dominated by the insecurities. Am I making sense at all? A hundred percent. I'm just taking lots of notes and I'm like, yes, I'm so glad we're talking about this. Um, so thank you for the opportunity. And it reminds me, I was just on a different podcast yesterday called The Former Lawyer, where I got to really delve into, because I am a former lawyer, I got to delve into some of the feelings I had as one of the onlys in my law school environment, in my law firm. Um, and so I've this has been a week to tap into the energy of that and to summon some of those difficult memories. Look, let me establish for your listeners where I am in life. Um, I have a lot of privileges and I want to really name that because um, of course, privilege informs what we see and can't see. Um, and I'm just going to speak to my own journey because I don't want to presume it's like anyone else's. Although I will say I wrote a memoir, Real American, you've already mentioned it, about my experience as a black and biracial person in white spaces. So being one of the onlys, whether as a kid, a college student, a law student, or a young professional, I'm now 54. And I want to name that because a lot of this stuff gets worked out over time, my friend. Mm. Okay, like I see you 32, going to be 33 later. I remember that. I'm 20 years, 22 years down the road from you, beckoning mm. you like it gets better. Like they say around queer kids and the Trevor Project, like it gets better. Like the older you get, the more you get to choose your workplace, the more you get to choose your neighborhood, the more you get to choose the groups you'll be affiliated with and not. Whereas when you're coming up, uh, you don't have all of that access to possibility. You're not yet that person. So it does get better with time. But my journey was this. I had enough experiences in childhood and adolescence that made me feel less than. I was the only black, I was the only child of color in a high school of 1200 people in Wisconsin. And some, can I swear on this podcast? Please. Some shitty things happened. And I didn't tell anybody because when I was called the N-word, uh, somebody wrote the n-word on my locker on my birthday when i turned 17 in my high school uh, i was so ashamed to be the n-word person in my town by that mm. point i didn't want to call further attention to my blackness and brownness by telling anybody that this happened so i just cleaned it up and hid it from myself mm. and from everybody but that shit festered in me i didn't speak of it until i was 44. it happened when i was 17 wow. okay but that began this descent into I'm going to perform the part of the black person who is perfectly fine, who is fine. You can't get to me who is capable. I will be right and correct. And on top of it all the time, like I became this performative person seeking the approval of mainstream white society. So I became the black kid afraid to speak up in class at Stanford as an undergrad because I didn't want to be black and wrong. So I was just going to be safe and not speak. You know, like I'm only going to speak if I can perform so beautifully that I will be above reproach. Like we're all triggered these days watching Judge uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson going through what she's going through. Like we're all yes. triggered by that because we've all we haven't all been in front of the U.S. Senate, but we've all had a set of white folks questioning and undermining. Do you have the talent, the qualifications to be here? Right. We have all dealt with that. All right. So we've all had our own version of that. So I was trying my best in, in undergrad and law school and out in the world of corporate law, just trying to please, please, please the white male gaze, the white gaze, like, let me be not the stereotype you are afraid of or you disdain. Let me demonstrate that I am a black person who is not that black person. What I came to realize when I was a senior administrator and I'd left law, I was now a dean at Stanford University, dean of freshman and undergraduate advising, looking after 
a number of things related to the to the undergraduate experience. I was working with an executive coach who was working with our whole team, my boss. The whole team was white except me. Everyone was older than me. Uh, everyone had a PhD. All I had was a law degree. Uh, didn't matter that it was from Harvard. It was still like not a good enough degree. So I'm the wrong color, the wrong age, the wrong degree. I'm on this team. And uh, she's trying to help us all get work, you know, work more effectively. And I begin to trust this coach. Her name's Mary Ellen. And the feedback she has for me is you're too angry and too aggressive. <laughs> and I laugh because, wow, what a stereotype, right? The black woman is angry and aggressive. How original. Mm. And she was like, I'm not here to pander to their stereotype. I'm telling you, that's what they perceive, you know, about how you are. Is it working for you? when you know these behaviors because i care about you she said and i had to admit it's not working for me i often am seen to be overreacting oversensitive oh and then i have to apologize and we've lost sight of the problematic thing they did so i said i want to get a little bit more in charge of myself you know and she said all right i'll teach you mindfulness so that you can notice the trigger when it happens love yourself through it because it happened for a good reason you know the feeling you have in response to that shit is valid but then you get to be in charge of, do I speak or not? Do I speak now or not? What am I going to say? It just puts you more in charge so that you're not this reactive, like bring the anger. If you choose to bring the anger, bring the emotion, if you choose to bring it. But if you decide, you know what, right now, I'm just going to sit here and listen, maybe say something later, maybe not, who knows, like, let that be up to you. And that changed my life. And that was age 39. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so let me tell you the final piece. Sorry, please. It's a long story. It's not long. Keep um, going. Okay. okay. Thank you. Um, as I continued to work with her on why the triggers were there, why is it that I get triggered when they seem to uh, diss me, when they think I'm, they don't like my idea or they discount it? Oh, all that stuff from childhood, all that stuff from the N word to the more microaggressive things. Okay. I, I came to admit to my coach, I hated being black as a kid and young adult. I was afraid of black people based on what the media had taught me. And I just wanted to be what white people valued. Okay. I said that those three shameful things, I felt they were very shameful. Hated being black, afraid of black people, just want to be what white people. I said that to myself and to my coach through tears, the snottiest tears. And what was happening was I was coming to terms with what all those messages had done to me. And in naming it, I tamed it and tossed it out. And literally the next day, I had a different countenance. Literally the next day, I was this self-loving black person who could walk onto my campus and see all these black faces that I had seen for years, students, faculty, staff. And it was like, they had gotten a memo saying smile at julie today it seemed like they had gotten a memo zach because every single one was smiling at me and i couldn't figure out why and then i realized they didn't get no memo i'm smiling at myself internally for Mm. maybe the first time since i was a tiny child who at age four discovered something's wrong with my black daddy and with me maybe i'm Mm. smiling at myself with self-love for the first time finally And since I can now see myself in my magnificence as a black woman, I can see, appreciate, and love all of the black people around me. Oh, my gosh. Mm. (laughs) I appreciate it. I'll take it. It was hard work. It was hard emotional work. 
but what a relief. I lay that burden down. You know, it's interesting because, you know, I, I was I was talking about this and I recognize I know that you're not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, so I'm not asking I'm not asking for your right. for a diagnosis in that context. But it's 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 interesting because I, I, I've been noticing and coming from a corporate context, you know, you talk about when I when I look around and I see like black folks my age and older who the uber uber successful mm-hmm. you know like the one or two who are in those really corporate spaces anytime i go to some job right like um there seems to be a pattern of and i don't know because i'm not in their i'm not in their brains and i'm not in their hearts but a certain level of self denial um and rejection of yeah. blackness um right. and um, in there, again, it's when I when I say this, I say this as just what I observe. It's like almost like part of being successful in corporate context is putting on whiteness, and p- part of putting on whiteness is disparaging or muting or dismissing not just your own blackness, right. but other black and brown people around you, right? right. Um, and I'm curious, like the work that you talk about um, mm-hmm. that you went through, yeah. How does that, I mean, what, what, what direction or what application do you see that for, for black and brown professionals who are, con, you know, we're conditioned like in this context, you talked about the media and what it did to, how it educated you about your own identity right? Um, and how we're socially conditioned to be anti-black and, and anti, right. so like, what's the, what's yeah. the path to healing there? Yeah. Um, I could picture people, as you described those one or two folks who are really, really senior and have made it, and how many of them uh, seem to choose to leave their blackness at the door to the extent they even feel they fully inhabit it to start with. Um, you know, have they already so distanced themselves from that heritage and experience that um, um, they don't connect to it? I don't know. Maybe they do pick it back up when they leave. They have learned, let's not blame that, like they have been taught by the system that to get to where you want to get in this career, you've got to play to the white audience and you've got to essentially be that person who they think, don't worry, you're not black, you're normal. That's what that that's what the white folks end up saying. Like you're one of us, right? We've mm-hmm. promoted you because you seem like us. My best friend in high school was a white girl who said that to me. I don't think of you as black. I think of you as normal, she said as she was watching Gone with the Wind and asking me, didn't I want to go live back then? I was like, I'm black. She's like, I would have been a slave. She said, no, no, no. If you weren't black, I said, I am black. She said, I don't think of you as black. I think of you as normal. And she thought it was a compliment to her. It was a compliment, right? To me, it started to chip away at my soul. And I Mm -hmm. think that's what's happened to these senior execs that you're describing. They have been brought into whiteness, told that they belong there, and they're doing their best to behave in the ways uh, white folks behave. Yeah. In my experience, when I tell this story to a black audience, the number of people who will come up to me afterwards and say, thank you for telling my truth. I've never Mm. been able to say out loud that I had been ashamed or maybe still am ashamed of my brown skin, you Mm. know, my ancestry. Like they're like, thank you for naming it because now I don't feel alone and Mm. I don't feel so ashamed or maybe I don't feel ashamed because I can accept they did this to me. Right. Mm. I didn't come into the world self-loathing. It was heaped upon me and they see a way forward in my story, which is do the psychological work, whether it's with a coach or a therapist. I realize these are privileged 
this is a privilege to access those things. But if you can, my message is go do that work. What we all need to get to is this place of self-love. Cause here's the thing, Zach, mm. when we really do love this self in all of its, whatever, we belong everywhere because we take mm. that self with us wherever we go. And then we can say, not from a place of self-loathing, but from a place of self-love, how do I want to walk into this corporation and behave so that I get my needs met? How do I want to show up in this group or this conversation so that I get my needs met? Not to please them, but to get my needs met. It might be the exact same outcome. It's like, I want a promotion. Do I want it because I want to prove to them how amazing I am? No, I want it because I want this for me and my family and what it means. Okay, so how am I going to behave in this moment to get my needs met. And maybe we do code switch and that's fine, but don't you dare code switch because you're self-loathing. <laughs> right? Right. 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 I, I just, this has been a dope conversation. I mean, I think, I guess I have a question as I think about like your own journey as an author, as a New York Times bestseller is like, do you feel like there's pressure to like, just continue to pump out fire books like every other year? Like, what is that? What does that journey look like to write so much? So I'm in my third career. Okay. Yeah. Right. I'm 54. I've been a lawyer. I've been a university dean. I've been claiming the identity writer now for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And I published three books in a span of six years, which is mm -hmm. fast. I don't feel external pressure. I am uh, a self-employed person who is the primary breadwinner for my family of four. And so I have a lot of internally applied pressure uh, to keep it going. I hustle. Um, I enjoy the hustle, uh, working on my next book idea. Now, um, I enjoy being my own boss. Um, and I know I got to hunt and down, hunt it down and kill it in order to eat it. Right. In the matter of like, as we do as entrepreneurs or as self-employed people, like I got to make the work happen. I don't have a biweekly paycheck to count on. Mm. Um, and, um, and I like, and it's terrifying. And it's also exhilarating. And that's the edge that I like to ride on because I intend to live this life, not just make it and coast. I'm not interested in making it and coasting and sitting back somewhere because I know mm -hmm. that that leads a person to wither. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm interested in relaxation and downtime for sure and regeneration and rejuvenation, but I'm hungry still for what can I do next? And it's not a matter of, I mean, I do care about money. I do care about certain metrics, but what I really mean is, I am here to live. And that means I'm going to learn and grow until I draw my very last breath. So where are my rough edges today? Where are therefore more opportunities for me to lean in, understand what's going on? How can I learn so that I can level up, be better at what I'm doing, be better at helping humans? My job, ultimately my purpose here in this life, as is the case for many of us, I know my calling is to help others on their path. So it's always in furtherance of what do I need to retool in myself so I can get better at helping others? I love that. You know, you talk about like living, you, you've talked about life. We, we started off talking about life. You have something called Julie's pod, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, you co-created community where you talk about a lot of really incredible things, a regular newsletter, um, and folks can, call in and they can you know, participate. And, you know, it's interesting. I'm looking at um, a, a blog, uh, a newsletter, rather, entry that you had uh, in March, early this month, actually. You talked about this weekend, I didn't fail to work. I succeeded at being human. Um, what what would you say, like, I guess, first to um, 
to black and brown folks who are cogs in the machine, but then also um, to the executive leaders of these institutions um, in a in a season where there is so much pressure to produce, right? Like we're in this late stage capitalist society where production, production, getting to it. I mean, even some of the ways we frame people, people over the past five, six years have stopped talking about work-life balance and work-life blend continues to be more and more on the forefront of, uh, of our vocabulary. Um, you know, we're, again, we're constantly seemingly under pressure to, to get up and do things um, and to not do, to not be quote unquote productive is then graded as a failure. Um, I'd love to just hear more about the newsletter um, and, and the this weekend I didn't fail to work at to Being Human and just the concept and advice you would give not only to the quote unquote worker, but to um, to executive leaders and, and, and how we can perhaps pivot um, for the sake of just equity and inclusion. Yeah. Thank you for that. I wrote that piece and thank you for mentioning it because um, I realized that for quite some time and too long, frankly, I've been working six and a half days a week. As I've said, I'm my own boss. So who's to blame? Me. And when I complain to my boss, me, I'm working too hard. I hate what my calendar looks like this week. My boss looks at me in the mirror and says, what are you going to do about it? In other words, right? It's I've made these choices. Now I have to unmake these choices or make better choices. And I wrote that piece to say, I took this weekend off. I went away with my partner, my beloved 34 years together, um, met in college at 19 and 20, and we're still going strong. And you go strong by nourishing that relationship and taking time away for it. Just like self-care is essential to get this life you know, going where you want it to go relationship care is necessary. And that was a thinly veiled essay about my husband and I spent a lot of time in bed that weekend. And that was awesome. And we should do that if we have people in our lives, right? Anyway, so what I would say, it's a little bit off topic, but frankly, our relationships are the most important thing. There's research that shows that your longevity whether you live a long, healthy life is predicted by the quality of your relationships at 50, not your cholesterol level at 50. It's your relationship, not with everybody, but with a small number of ride or dies, right? And you don't just want to assume they'll be there, right? You have to caretake that. So I would say to the people who are in the machine, the black and brown folks in the machine, you call them cogs um, and the leaders, we now know we're in late stage capitalism. We know that, um, to be human is to be taxed by capitalism. And we know that we will burn out our bodies and our minds and our souls if we don't center the fact that there are human beings doing the work. So to managers, I would say, don't you dare start a single meeting without a check-in that is real, where you say, look, we're all human beings, we're here to do this work, but let's spend an adequate amount of time at the front end just hearing how you're doing, what's going on, anything we need to know right? Show your people that they are human beings. You will begin to create a sense of belonging on your team, potentially to the whole organization, and they will show up for you and do anything you need on the work side because you have shown them and demonstrated time over time. I see you first and foremost as a human being. And I think that revolution is underway thanks to Gen Z and younger millennials who are like, we're not having it. We will not be hazed the way the Gen Xers, my Gen, and the boomers were hazed. We're interrupting that cycle of trauma. And I am here with wild applause for those who are still in it, you know, who are younger, more junior, I would say, look, 
Bottom line, your boss wants you to come to work and work. I'm trying to tell bosses, you need to also value people as humans. What I want to tell the younger set is you're going to get ahead by working your tail off, doing really good work. And that includes anticipating, how can I be helpful? How can I be useful? How can I anticipate what my boss might need and get ahead of it and offer it? So they see I'm here to support you and being successful boss. That'll give your boss a sense of relief. Like they're on my team. I get it. Okay. Hard work and intuit intuition, what is needed, um, self-care. So on those days when you just, I need to go take a break. I need a breather. I need to go talk to somebody like you matter. Yes. Bring that. And then these human connections, your character, not whether you're the fastest, bestest, are you the kindest? Are you the person who talks to everybody, no matter whether levels below you or levels above you or right? Your character is the greatest measure of your worth. And you will be, you will be rewarded for your good character. You will be feel good about yourself because you have good character. Um, and I think that's the way when you want to work and grow at one thing, work on your character, work on being more patient, more gracious, more kind on giving other people space and room. Um, as a young person, hustle, work hard. Um, but not so hard that you burn yourself out. The older the get, you get, the more capital you carry and the more you're in charge of the choices you make. And as I've said, the spaces you work in and live in. So there is a little bit of the twenties. I think that's about the twenties. That's like, you know what? It's not yet. You're not yet living the dream, but you're working hard and making a way for yourself so that pretty soon you can feel, you know what? I am kind of living the dream. Julie, this has been a great conversation. Um, I want to thank you for being a guest. Definitely consider you a friend of the show. Thank you. Um, and, you know, this is not uh, on camera, but your background is fire. Your hair looks great. Thank and I just want to thank you, thank you. again. Um, we look forward to having you mm -hmm. back. Before we let you go, any parting words or shout outs? Absolutely. First of all, gratitude to you, Zach. Gratitude to the listeners for being with us. Listener, I'm talking to you right now. If anything came up for you, if your heart beated a little bit faster, if you're uh, you were nodding your head or what have you pay attention. That's a clue from your spirit that we were talking about something that matters to you. Take that forward into the rest of your day, into your weekend and whatnot, and be curious about what was coming up for you as you listened and why. And finally, I will say my, my newest book, your turn is for anyone struggling with this adult life. Am I doing it right? Am I doing it well? How do I make the most of it? And it's newly out in paperback. And if that resonates with anybody, please check it out. Your turn, how to be an adult. Um, I wrote this book for you. Wonderful. Julie, we'll talk to you soon. Sounds great. Thanks, Zach. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.